0: Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, is the author of our Book of the Month for February. It's titled Without Flesh. What does the Church have to offer the world in this present darkness? Find out in Without Flesh. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1 800 325 3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. <music>
1: We can thank Hillary Clinton in 2016 for the worst platform language in the history of the platform language. (laughs) And it was clear she didn't want to vote, so uh, I guess she got what she asked for. For many, politics is becoming their religion, both on the right and on the left. And I think that it's important that we recognize that
0: this is ultimately a spiritual battle. You can't make the mistake of letting the power of the gospel deny the accountability of the human being to resist and reject what God gives.
2: This is Jeff in Michigan, Lutheran layman, learning
0: Latin, love, issues, etc. The Christian church says, so many sectors of it today claim, that they take the words of Christ seriously. When Jesus says, love thy neighbor, or when he says things to the effect of take care of those who are poor. They're all on board when he says things like he would rise from the dead. Many of them are also on board with those words. Then he says, this is my body while holding in his hand bread for his disciples to eat. And then they're not on board anymore. Does Jesus mean what he says? And what are the consequences of not being on board with Jesus when he says in clear, plain language, this is my body, this is my blood. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Thursday afternoon, the 6th of February. We're going to be talking with Pastor Jonathan Fisk about the Lord's Supper and the church. A little bit later in hour two of issues, et cetera, Bill McKeever will join us of Mormonism Research Ministry. A Los Angeles Times story has the headline, Was Mitt Romney's Vote the Fulfillment of a Mormon Prophecy? They're talking about the alleged prophecy of Joseph Smith, his white horse prophecy. After our conversation with Bill, we'll spend some time with Pastor Ted Geese reviewing the movie Jojo Rabbit. It is a satirical Nazi film. Does it get the work done? Is it funny? Then we'll do listener email and the issues, et cetera, comment line that email, talkbackatissuesetc.org, and the comment line 618-223-8382. Joining us to talk about the Lord's Supper in the church, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. He's administrative pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois, and author of the Issues, Et cetera, book of the month for February without flesh. Jonathan, welcome back. Good to be back. You say that the church today is at the same time cowardly and arrogant. What do you mean by
1: that? First, I want to make sure it's clear that I accuse myself with that statement as much as as anyone else. I think if you're going to be an honest Christian assessing the state of Jesus' church in the United States in the 21st century, first, you're going to find there's some problems, And, and then second, the tendency of your animal nature, your sinful flesh, is going to be to want to to blame those problems on external realities external things not you and a big part of without flesh is the call for all of us to stop doing that and assume from the start that it's pretty bad, something's really wrong, something's really dysfunctional in Western American Christianity. And even though as LCMS as Lutherans, we're, we're trying to hold our ground and stand firm in the word, there's something wrong structurally or or worldview-wise with the whole thing. And that means that before we go in and say, I know, I know, I know, here's what, we should kind of enter everything with a bit more humility. And by that, I I don't mean not trusting the Word of God. It's quite the opposite of that. It's just not trusting ourselves, Uh, not being willing to stand upon what we think is so clear and against, often, when we do that, what the clear text of Scripture does say. So the arrogance that I'm bothered by in myself first, and then also just in Christianity, is how highly we think of our position in civilization right now. I think that we are blinded by how little influence we're having and how increasingly that influence is being ebbed away, kind of like a a sandcastle gradually getting pulled away by the incoming tide. And uh, for many segments of what we would call uh, media or or communications in the Christian world in, in English, there's some awareness that something's wrong. There's, there's some sky is falling chicken little stuff as well, but there's also a certainty that this thing can't get messed up by us somehow. And you can kind of fuse that a little bit with some of the church growth movement's attempt to say, think out of the box and, and reach the culture and, and all this kind of stuff, but it ends up being a lot of hot air and a lot of not really repenting. And so, to acknowledge our arrogance in the face of this crisis, first and foremost, to, to realize that we're in a boat and that boat's got water in it and it's sinking and there's a storm coming. Maybe the first thing we should do is ask if we're drilling holes in the boat. <laughs> like, like if, there are, if that's what's happening and the Bible says that, then maybe we should patch those holes first before we do anything else. Stop jettisoning things. Stop throwing the sail overboard. You know, that'll fix it. No, slow down. Let's see if there's holes and my experience has been both as a person myself but i also think just as a whole we tend to not take that approach to asking what's wrong and then at the same time at the same time we are we are silenced i mean if there is a problem that i think we can all observe is that most of us as christians are afraid to talk about christianity in public (laughs) we don't do it (laughs) why why is what i want to know the early church definitely did that and they did it in circumstances far more dangerous than the ones we're in right now. I mean, the worst you're gonna get is like a social media pat on the wrist, for the most part. There are places in the world, France recently, where where certain types of persecutions can be quite significantly more than that, but we're not really there yet in the English speaking world, and yet we kind of act like we are. And the more we do that, the more we refuse to draw our own lines about what we believe firmly to be true and to, and to live kind of in those boundaries together and, and to make no qualms about it, make no bones about it, well, the more we then gradually let go of it ourselves. Because if you will not say what you believe, at a certain point, you don't believe it at a certain point. Now, it's possible to be a Christian in hiding or something like that, but that's just really not what's going on. What's happening is we are retreating. We are retreating and then retreating some more and this tends to influence a lot of our practices Uh, you know examples really don't matter in a sense but if you look at the commitment to engaging missionary activity worldwide and locally without regard for the safety of the missionary in 150 years ago and you compare that to today uh, it is significantly different and that's just an example I, i'm not trying to call it missionaries or anything like that but we just we approach all of it with a hesitancy that you just don't see that in in the early church martyrs uh, you do still see that in the early church and so my question is you know why am i a coward this is what i'm asking why am i a coward what am i afraid of i'm i'm immortal i'm not gonna die uh, jesus has risen and he, the lord reigns in sign what am i afraid of and I don't think I'm alone, though. I think, I think this is a, it's the water that we're swimming in as we watch Western Civ just completely self-destruct around us. And increasingly, we have to ask ourselves as Christians, okay, so, so what is it? What are these holes in our boat? And certainly, I mentioned already, the church growth movement has a, a, a I call it a vainglorious history, uh, about 40 years old or so, of uh, saying, well, we're going to find the answer. We know there's a problem. I know. Let's throw everything overboard and and we'll be fine. We'll start over. We'll build a new boat right now. And the biggest issue with that in my mind is that those sacramentarians that are leading that charge, and we can talk about that word in a moment, those sacramentarians that are leading that charge, they don't really question everything. And they certainly don't question the assumptions of what you and I would agree are the 16th century heterodox sacramentarian teachers, which I would contend are one of the driving factors in not only the collapse of Western churches, but particularly the collapse of of Western civilization itself, because it's very closely tied to our trust in the Enlightenment and then its failure as a system of bringing world peace. That's a pretty bold claim, I guess, but there's my
0: first answer. How's that? Well, explain the word sacramentarian.
1: So sacramentarian is a word used by the Reformers' And really the the next generation of reformers quite a bit when they had to deal after Luther's death with Philip Melanchthon taking the helm of Wittenberg's teaching area, the University of Wittenberg, and then with the rise of Calvin in the wake of Zwingli. But if if you know those names, Calvin or Zwingli, then sacramentarian can apply to them and everyone who learned from them to believe that what we call the sacraments, uh, particularly baptism and the Lord's Supper, while being from Jesus in some way, certainly are not local actions of Jesus himself to do things spiritually right now with the fleshly stuff. So like the Calvinist sacramentarian will say the Lord's Supper does something spiritually, but it's not Jesus localized physical body doing that. So anything that is from that tree, any idea that builds on that foundation and, and everything that is not Lutheran Orthodox or Roman Catholic more or less fits into that category, but they are sharing together a common communion, literally a common view of the Lord's supper, which then again, we call sacramentarian for short. I've started using the word quite a bit more recently because on my my Saturday morning chill YouTube show that I do every Saturday, we we kind of sit there and answer questions. Someone who is of a Calvinist nature got upset that I was talking about the Reformed, in quotes, and referring to, say, a Pentecostal group doing something. And I followed up with him on that and answered his question and, and we dialogued a bit in the show. And what I realized was that, at least in my own mind, I'd been using Reformed and Sacramentarian to mean the same thing. And yet in his circles, the Reformed, it meant very different things. So I just started using the word sacramentarian more often so I could make sure I could lump them all together, <laughs> uh, which maybe is not fair, but, but on that one issue, and I, I do think it's the defining issue of our times as Christians and as the church, on that one issue of what is this bread? You have these four camps and the sacramentarian camp is all Protestantism with the exception of the conservative reformation, otherwise known as the Lutheran reformation.
0: We're talking about the Lord's Supper and the Church Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. He's administrative pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois, author of The Issues, Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh. Stay tuned.
1: This week on The Word of the
2: Lord Endures Forever, we'll study the spirit of truth, Jesus leaves his peace, the true vine, greater love, hatred, and persecution. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of
1: the Lord Endures Forever, your daily verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary.
2: I prefer St. Paul who says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that's what the February issue of the Lutheran Witness is all about, hearing and believing. It includes articles about hearing with your eyes, singing the gospel, listening to the word of God in sermons, and proclaiming the gospel in foreign lands. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world, from a Lutheran perspective, cph.org slash witness. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Rockland, California, we keep the focus on Christ every Sunday with ancient liturgy, preaching from the lectionary, and
0: celebration of the sacrament of the altar. Come be a part of the evangelical and Catholic faith as handed down to us in the Lutheran Confessions. We celebrate the Divine Service every Sunday at 8 o'clock and 10.30 with Sunday school for all ages at 9.15. To learn more, visit HolyCrossRocklin.org. Remember when education was about the fundamental skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and about reading great literature and studying history to give our kids a model for what it is to be a good person? Memoria Press's Classical Christian Curriculum offers that very model for your homeschool. Get $5 off your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. For more information, go to memoriapress.com. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Lord's Supper and the Church. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh. Jonathan, I was going to ask how the culture has gained control of the Church's message, but it sounds like from what we were talking about before the break that it's more like the Church has abandoned its message or perhaps just ceded control to the culture.
1: It, yeah, I think that's right. At least in one way of looking at it, I, I don't think we just gave up. I don't think that Christians weren't trying, but we're at the point now where we are seeding the ground, and maybe even seeding the battlefield. You know, there's an old—I guess it's a proverb. I may have picked this up from Sun Tzu too, in, in *Art of War*. The, the idea that the one who chooses the battleground will always have the advantage in the fight at least to some extent, or you're taking a advantage in the fight because you're dictating the terms of the engagement. And this can go and really apply to a conversation. So if you're going to have a debate with somebody, the terms that are used, the rules for the debate, they will have a lot to do with the content and the and the, the effectiveness of the debate. And then this definitely has has things to do with You experience this if you're a sports fan. If you play away games, they're tougher. It just is, right? They're, you're on their home court. So what I don't think we realized is that English has not been Christianity, and and by that I guess I should say, English has not been Orthodox Christianity's home court ever. It has always been sacramental Christianity's home court. And in that regard, the English language has certain assumptions built into a lot of the terminology in Christianity that not only were infused with certain assumptions about, about the world that are not what the scriptures teach, but we kind of think they are because those words, those English words, might be in the Bible somewhere and we we will overlap their meanings, and or the enlightenment and its effect on that, or the idea of materialism, that everything can be studied and understood scientifically and in a certain logical and rigorous way. And that, that itself is at the heart of the sacramentarian issue. With the lord's supper that's the move they make at that time so it's a theological a a knowledge of god issue for them at that moment but then also when king james part of the uh, anglican church definitely a calvinist leaning sacramentarian allowing church body puts the first real official bible codifies english as a, a language that will last the result is that that assumption even in small ways, is built into the text, but more than just built into the text, is built into the language and, and, that comes from the text. So that English is, this is a strength, a hyper-logical language, but it also has certain assumptions about logic and the way things work and so forth. And it's kind of a poison pill. And this might be rough. I'm, I'm an English nerd by training. I think one of my favorite classes in my undergrad was called the History and Structure of the English Language, which I, I it has to be the most boring sounding thing ever to everybody else, even if I think it's interesting. It's not. <laughs> but it has something to do with how we're allowed to think now and the terminology we've inherited. So, what I think happened was there were certain presuppositions that were baked into English that gradually began to etch away at Orthodox Christianity on a bigger level and even in our ability to cling to it and hold to it. And then over time, those influenced the way that we would look at the rest of the text. And then over time, we didn't even realize what we'd lost by that point, but we realized we were losing. And sadly, the revivalistic answer to this has always been, well, we're losing we must have to add something else or maybe we should take something else away. And so, you, again, you, you lose more and more to the point where, and I, and I don't draw a one-to-one, this is not a direct result of the English language, but you got famous preachers like Joel Olstein in Texas who will not use the word sin at all or, and it's not even that he won't use the word sin. He does not use the idea sin at all. He does not use the idea of critical wickedness or the animal nature, the carnal nature of mankind at all in his preaching. So he's moved away from entire segments of the language because of certain assumptions. He would even say because it has certain assumptions in the culture, which frankly, if we go as Lutherans and try to define it, the way we would define the word sin is not gonna be the same way that your average person on the street would, and they know that word. It's, it's a haunting word for them. But what does it mean? So that's part of the issue. They gained control of the church's message by gaining control of our language, and we didn't realize it. And then we started believing what they were saying with our words without realizing it. And as that's happened over, I, I would contend, centuries now, we just lost more and more and more and more, even the, the essence of words themselves. So if you want to track, say, the great kind of movement of postmodernism I'm calling it more and more post-enlightenmentism or the post-enlightened world, one of the great movements of it is to point out the, the confusability of human language, how information that I say may not be understood by you and therefore there may be no understanding at all between us even though we're both trying really hard to understand each other. So that's their big claim and, and out of that comes this idea that there is no real truth, there's only context and experience. Well, that's the, I think that's the logical end result of the word is can't mean is, but has to be symbolizes. Well, Once you take away that word, it means that's the root word of any language ever. You take away the ability to say that at a very centralized place of your belief system, and you have to build your entire belief system around not letting that mean that there. It's going to impact the way you understand that word everywhere else. I find it endlessly ironic that one of the major debates of the day is the meaning of the word day in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 uh, that, that a day is 24 hours and you have Christians throughout the country yelling at the top of their lungs about taking the bible literally and how important it is to believe a day is a day well i think that's a smaller word than the word is i think is is pretty existentially central <laughs> it, 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 there's no way to have sentences or or meaning or anything without understanding the word is and yet that's the one that we rejected first and again i would contend there's sort of a a mixed bag perfect storm of poison pills coming down the the pike and we're just facing what it's done to us here so how is the culture gained control uh, we let them but I also think it's been it's been baked into English in ways that's tough for us to see but are going to be revealed more and more as the new English that's being used mass media having a major influence on it continues to redefine terms entirely in such a way that we can't even really speak with them if you want to talk about marriage today you have to do more than just say the word because it's, it's being so vacuously emptied of its meaning that it isn't useful for conversation. I, I would contend that's the case for much of what the church wants to say, including with those terms I mentioned before, sin, grace, faith, justification, all these things. They're words that don't belong in the language anymore. And the question is, how do we get them back in the language? How do we stop letting the language tell us how to talk, if that makes sense? So that can be a little bit radical, I suppose, but that, that would be my answer.
0: Do you see a connection between the political cultural debate over a sentence like marriage is blank or a man is blank or a woman is blank and the malleability of that is word? Among Christians when it comes to the Lord's Supper.
1: I do just just from a from a grammatical point of view And I know people don't don't like grammar, but you use it all the time whether you like it or not I think you probably just didn't like the way grammar was taught more than than grammar itself but it's the same argument if you look at what's being said about a man who desires to believe he is a woman not really being a man but, but being instead what, you know, he spiritually would want to be or feels that he ought to be. I mean, they may not use the word spirit, but they are talking about that. They're talking about spiritual reality. And you compare that argument to the reasons why the bread can't be the body of Jesus uh, and, and the resulting what it is then instead. So this is my body doesn't mean this is my body. It means this is an outward thing, but my body's this other thing somewhere else. Well, that's exactly what the man who is thinking he's a woman is is saying that the the physical body he has which you would point to and say this is your body that it's not that that's not him he's some other thing right Uh, so it's really not so far removed I I don't think this is a one-to-one direct like like point to point this is a shifting in the language itself that has taken 500 years to really do all its work everywhere But it is kind of amazing. It's still right there on the surface too. You can see some of the same questions happening. It's just, we started with is, and then we moved from there to everything else. And we've allowed that to be part of our assumption within the language. And I, again, I don't don't necessarily know the answer, but I do know, I do know the answer insofar as getting back to patching the holes in the boat. So if there's something that we're missing and it is, Jesus body <laughs> Well, then that's important isn't it Jesus Savior pilot me I think I want him in the ship now of course if you're a Lutheran listener you're like well we got him in the ship yeah we do I think hopefully usually most places I don't know until you go to the church and listen to what's said sometimes I gotta wonder a little bit and even then if you you pick up a good resource like the blessing of weekly communion uh, by, by Ken Weeding published by CPH oh, over a decade ago now And it tracks the history of the practice of the Lord's Supper in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And you find out that while we have on paper said, we believe this for a good long while, our practices aren't always quite a reflection of that belief. And sometimes are quite stunningly a reflection of of letting go of that belief. Maybe not intentionally, but again, this this isn't about any one of us sitting down and saying, I'm going to be a heretic today. This is about... Uh, the zeitgeist, the wind of the age, the spirit of the epoch in which we live. And the epoch we live in is the rise and fall of the English empire, if we're going to just talk kind of globally and idea-wise. And I'm going to contend that one way or the other, we're moving from what was once, say, the king's English empire, or we're moving into a a significantly more barbaric set of times. And with that will come, well, new language that, uh, well, we're going to have to work pretty hard to find our way translating into it what we believe and in such a way even that we can hold it against the stealing of our words by others and reusing them against us
0: pastor jonathan fisk is our guest when we come back from the break we're going to talk about a 20th century german slash australian theologian herman zasse and how even then during his lifetime he was showing us a way forward against the culture's control of the church's message i'm todd wilkin this is issues etc Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, is the author of our Book of the Month for February. It's titled, Without Flesh. What does the church have to offer the world in this present darkness? Find out in Without Flesh. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh, by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear
2: witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Lutheran Federal Credit Union serves the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod community with car and personal loans, mortgages, credit cards, checking and savings accounts. Lutheran FCU supports LCMS organizations with its Spotlight Ministry program. And Lutheran Federal Credit Union allows you to make purchases with Apple Pay, Google Pay and Samsung Pay using your digital wallet. Learn more at lutheranfcu.org. Good for you, good for the church, Lutheran Federal Credit Union, LutheranFCU.org.
1: College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.
2: Spiritual
0: and religious.
2: You're listening to Issues
0: Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Atonement Lutheran, Glendale, Arizona. Concordia Lutheran, Geneseo, Illinois. Grace Lutheran, Auburn, Michigan. Emmanuel Lutheran, Alexandria, Virginia. Messiah Lutheran, Lebanon, Illinois. Our Savior Lutheran, Stevensville, Montana. Redeemer Lutheran, Mandeville, Louisiana. St. John Lutheran, Port Sanilac, Michigan. St. Paul Lutheran, Long Beach, California. And Trinity Lutheran, San Dimas, California. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to IssuesETC.org, click Support, Donate, and print the one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. We're beginning a series on the Lord's Supper and the Church with Pastor Jonathan Fisk. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Registration for the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the case conference is way ahead of where it's ever been. We're more than four months away from the conference, and we're more than half full. Attendance is limited to 500. It's an opportunity for you to meet and hear Mark and Molly Hemingway, on Christian political engagement, Albert Moeller on secularism and the U.S. Constitution and civic virtue with Dr. Robert George, Brian Wolfmiller on the Trinity, and Pastor Hans Feeney on the obedience of Christ. Making the case is Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. You can learn more and register at issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. Jonathan, who is Herman Sasse, and why were his thoughts in a similar situation especially important for us today?
1: My guess is a good number of your listeners have heard his name before, but many others maybe have not. He is, sadly, I think, a somewhat obscure Lutheran theologian, professor and teacher from the previous century, uh, 1940s, 1950s, and 60s even, down in Australia. He was an expatriate that left Germany after the war, uh, World War Two, and ended up finishing his life with the, the Lutheran Church in Australia. I think he is the most important Bible mind of the last century, above and beyond in, like at a level of influence, he should be at the level of influence of someone like a C.S. Lewis. Now, Lewis is more famous. Lewis spoke English natively, which again was the language of the era and still, still is in many ways, and, and Sasa was a German. But his writing and his thinking is a lot like Lewis in terms of the clarity he brings when he talks. Not everyone can do this, especially in writing, to, to, to be succinct, straightforward, knowledgeable, and make sense on a way that, that many people can read him. Sasa had that ability. Sadly, most of his works have not been published in English in a way that I would say make that accessible. There are a lot of essays that are in volumes, and it's just not the kind of thing that the, the average lay person is just going to pick up and read. But he is a very clear, very helpful thinker about Christianity under an oppressive or attacking culture, and particularly a sacramental Christianity under an oppressive culture in the midst of a majority sacramentarian resistance. And literally, this was happening for him with the Nazis. The Nazis were the ones that were infiltrating all of Germany. One of the ways they were doing this was through the Christian churches. These were state-run churches to begin with, which wasn't necessarily that bad before this. It wasn't really good either. Hence, you have the Missouri Senate eventually to become Saxons, leaving to escape it. But it wasn't so bad that, say, they were rounding up people and murdering them or, or things like that. But you know the Nazi platform, in order to take control of the civilization, saw the church as a social club slash cornerstone of that civilization, uh, a proxy for a town hall in every area, and they knew that if they could infiltrate it, they would be able to then influence the rest of the nation through that slowly. It was the long game. And this is part of my concern with us as Christians. We're not playing the long game, and the world always is. Uh, We seem to be going for the short win a lot recently, and it doesn't seem to help us. So Sasa, well, he he was a long game player, and he, and he saw what was going on. He worked at a university where he very much could have been reprimanded, fired, or even uh, imprisoned for some of the things he said and wrote, but he did it anyway. My understanding is that he was largely covered, shielded by a dean or, or some level of higher management position within the uh, the seminary slash uh, university there that kept deflecting. So he never quite got the ramifications that he could have because of that person. but he he spoke out boldly about the evils of the National Socialist program, the Nazis, as well as then, you would think everyone would have liked that. Well they did. The Christians did. But then that Christian movement that also wanted to speak out, at the same time, tried to use the moment to form a unification of certain disagreements. And in in that, at the big moment, it was an event called the Barman Declaration. At that big moment where they were going to say... The Nazi Christian movement, I think it was called the German Christian movement, but it was the Nazi party in the churches. It was called the German Christian movement, that this is not Christianity. At that big moment when they got together and he was going to say this with a bunch of other Christians from Protestant, you know, confessions. They tried to slip in to that same statement, a statement on the Lord's Supper, which in fact denied the body of Christ's localized presence in the bread and and the blood of Christ localized in the wine. And so he walked away from that. And didn't sign it, was just completely railed and ostracized, called a, called a divider and all these things for not helping them stand together at that moment. But he, he writes about this and he explains it regularly that without the heartbeat, we can't live. And that a significant majority of Christianity in the world Especially if you count history as well on that side, so Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans, and then all history up to fifteen, you know, twenty or so, believed one thing about the Lord's Supper. And now you're asking me, in order to say that the Nazis are bad, I also have to deny that thing. That's a pretty big deal. That shows this is pretty entrenched in in your own system as well. And so he he, he writes about it in that kind of a way and with a clarity. That I find just tremendously valuable and doubly so in this, at least in, in his essay, Church and Lord's Supper from his Lonely Way, Volume 2, which is not his publication, but one of ours of his essays I mentioned earlier. He contends that, okay, so Hitler's in charge. You got the Nazis driving tanks down the street, invading all over the place. Your Your neighbors are beginning to quietly disappear. You know what we should do? We should make sure we're taking the Lord's Supper again because we've stopped and we don't believe it anymore. We should do that because if we don't do that, nothing else matters. And that's, I mean, he didn't quite say it like that, but he did. He saw that the only way the church could have been infiltrated that much ever was that it forgot what it was there for. And it looked for some other thing to replace it. It allowed that to sneak in because it was hungry. It was starving. It needed food. Why? Because the food had been taken away. As much as the... 18th century, 19th century, and, and early 20th century Protestant churches were preaching some kind of deistic God who maybe sometimes had a son named Jesus who loved you and wanted you to have a good life. The cult-like liturgical hunger and need for the flesh and blood of the living God, well, that had been gone for a while. And when you take that out, well, then you need somewhere else to put your hope because that's the hope. That's the Christian hope. Is that Jesus is here right now, with you, for you, becoming one with you, binding with you. Well, you take that away, you got to put something else in its place. It doesn't matter what it's going to be. Eventually, the devil's going to use it for great evil. And So that's the insight I think he had. And that essay particularly, to me, convinced me, this was over a decade ago, that this is the battleground of our age without flesh as a work is an attempt to take that essay, which while I would love it to be very accessible and everyone can go out and buy Lonely Way volume two, find that essay, read it and do fine. Um, I I figured maybe I should translate that a little bit and push it forward into our age. And so that's really what the, the case I'm gonna make is, is that at a time when the church is dying, if that's what you see physically outside of you, the pews are emptier, the civilization isn't listening, people are retreating, Christians are afraid, then the answer is the Lord's supper. And if you say, Well, we've got the Lord's Supper, I'm going to say, If you said that, then you're not listening. (laughs) Great, you got it? Then go back to it harder. Ask what you don't have. Assume that you're missing something. Assume that as a body, as an organization, as, as a congregation, or as an individual, as a family, you haven't prioritized this enough. Think about your church attendance. How often do you miss? How willing are you to miss? In my congregation, there is a good percentage of what I would call faithful attending members who still only come three times a month. That's interesting, isn't it? That is not the way it was uh, 150 years ago. And certainly, if if you believe the Lord's Supper is like immortality and life and you need it all the time, why would you miss? Why would you even consider missing? Yes, you can get sick. And yes, there's things that cause that to come up. That's not my point. My point is, before you say we've got it, I think we should all slow down and ask, do we have it? And if we don't, we got to put it back. And if we we do, well, we want to double down on that. We want to double down on the on the thing that can't die, and the church can't really die. So if you think yours is dying, that means you're missing the thing that can't die. What can't die? Jesus. He's never going to die again. He's risen, and he's right there in bread and wine. And again, I contend that the the the, the reason we're cowards is because we don't believe it, or maybe. We only believe it with a childlike faith. It's time that we grow up, get mature, and put some active thought and intention into what it means. Make some decisions in life. uh, Take some positions culturally, uh, societally, personally, wherever you are in your life, whoever you are, based upon your conviction that this is true. And stop asking, you know, what are the results? Instead, ask, you know, what foundation am I standing on?
0: we'll talk about what the ancient church did with jesus words this is my body this is my blood when we come back we're talking about the lord's supper in the church with pastor jonathan fisk
2: to serve our families and our communities to the best of our abilities. And, you know, we should take our vocational responsibilities in these areas very seriously. And and I think that involves making sure that we create conditions in America that continue to allow religious freedom and and allow our Lutheran faith to continue to thrive and that we can continue to evangelize.
0: Mark Hemingway talking about his joint presentation with his wife Molly at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference.
2: The fact of the matter is is that on those particular issues of religious liberty and preserving our faith from the onslaught of bad cultural and political ideas, things have never been more dire, and it's more important than ever.
0: You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway making the case for Christian political engagement at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more and register at IssuesETC.org.
2: Sacramental, Historical, Liturgical. You're listening to Issues, Etc. This is Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University Chicago, with a message for parents, grandparents, and godparents of college bound children. Concordia Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're devoted to our Lutheran confession and committed to strong academics please encourage your child, grandchild, or godchild to check out Concordia University Chicago at cuchicago.edu. LCMS Rural and Small Town Mission exists to support and encourage congregations in rural and small town settings. In partnership with LCMS districts, RSTM is uniquely positioned to make a major impact in revitalization support, community engagement and outreach training, congregational partnership development, and worker support, through providing and developing resources geared specifically to rural and small-town congregations. Check us out at lcms.org slash rstm, or give us a call at our office. We're here to help.
0: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, February the 6th, we're talking the Lord's Supper and the Church, beginning a series with Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh. What did the ancient church do with Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood?
1: They believed them. They believed them as a marvel, as a mystery that was beyond comprehension, and yet to be counted as more true than any observation in life. Whatever you might see, whatever you might touch, whatever you might handle, whatever you might smell, these things are real, but they're less real than Jesus' words, this is my body, spoken about the bread Which you're supposed to eat the ancient church didn't question these words they didn't debate these words they did not struggle in any way to hold these words that's the first thing they did they believed them the second thing they did is they did them so it's not just this is my body this is my blood it's do this and you can make a lot of hay out of how to best translate in remembrance of me whether that means that we're to remember him whether that means that he remembers us when he sees us doing this, whether that means that this is his testimony to us of what he has done. I think the best argument is that it's all of those things wrapped into one profound covenantal reality. Regardless, do this means do this. It's not that tough. Here's some bread. Eat it. It's me. Here's some wine. Eat it. It's me. That's what they did. They received it. They received it and they practiced it. The Lord's day they met, as Acts teaches us, they met regularly to receive the apostles teaching, that is the instruction in discipleship, the discipline of the long gospel of God, and then to break bread. And if you track Luke's use of that language, it is very likely, I would say even certain, that that is a reference to feasting upon the sacrament together. And you even find that some of the earliest writings of Christian martyrs, Justin Martyr in particular, are geared not so much to defend that view against other Christians who would doubt it, but against the pagans, the unbelievers, who heard about what was happening and misunderstood it. And so would accuse Christians of eating the blood of their sons and whatnot, the blood of a child, a young boy, when they would get together and feast. And Justin Martyr writes to say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. We're eating the bread and wine that Jesus said is his flesh and blood. He doesn't bother to go into anything to like clear up how this is a superstitious myth. If you think it's really local and instead it's just a pattern that we're supposed to do to remember stuff. None of that's there. Instead, it's just, here's what it really is. And early Christian fathers increasingly then make commentary on it. It was a very private thing initially, but it becomes public. It becomes something that's taught about. And again and again, what they do is they confess then what they believe, which is what the words say. And then they practice them. And, They were so committed to this reality, and and I think this is something that's worth pondering. I don't know that we have a way to get there as modern people, but they were so convinced of the supernaturalness of this reality that when it was time for the sermon to be over and the prayers to be done and to pull out the bread and wine and to have the supper, they would go around to all the visitors, say, thank you for coming today, go home now. We're not done yet, but you don't get to stay. And I don't know how they said it. I don't know that they mattered. It mattered to them quite so much about, you know, marketing and and trying to be winsome and all those things that we have to worry about today. Do we have to? We do worry about them today. But they certainly were making no qualms about sharing. Something different was about to happen. Something supernatural was about to happen. Something cultic, you could say, if you take that away from the modern meaning, was about to happen. Something divine what was about to happen and they believed that and they lived from that and it's in that 300 years of that practice that the church well gets killed for it often but then also experiences the kind of growth that today we just kind of we like to boast about how we're going to do it we're going to go energize we're, we're going to go do this we're going to go do that we're going to go make this amazing thing uh, now we've got this new person now we got this new organization we've got a new program a new binder a new workbook a new folder a new app now the church is going to grow we're all wishing to be that third century church well, what did the third century church do they gathered to receive the supper often in secret but in such a way that they wouldn't miss it for their lives that's what they did and that was so radically different from the world as it would be today well, that people wanted to know more and you know they didn't have visitors they had inquirers is the word that comes down to us inquirers what's going on uh, uh, we don't have that at all now we, we don't, our own people don't want to know what's going on <laughs> they're like i can't wait to get home the game's on in 10 minutes yeah it's, it's kind of boring I, mean, I don't really like all this stuff but i gotta be here right well yeah no wonder we're dying are you aren't you hungry and so that's kind of the the, the question and i again i'm asking myself aren't you hungry Why aren't you hungry? What have you got that has convinced you not to be hungry? And do you want to repent of that? Yes, of course, I'm a Christian, I want to. Well then, okay, where do I go? Back to the supper yet again. Back to burying myself in the single gift. Uh, Back to confessing that it's not just about me kneeling to get that gift, it's about everyone kneeling with me and that we are one, even as Christ and the Father are one. And this is a physical reality that will transcend the grave itself. Wow, what a thing. Again, we're all immortals now. And the Lord, He is King and He reigns in Zion wow (laughs) you know uh, i think i think that's a reason to at least combat the fear in your own heart it's a tool by which you can attack your own heart and say you know what heart you're wrong you're wrong and the word of god is right and again it all hinges on uh, what the word is you know where is the king what is he doing may we trust him when he speaks and is he is he capable of surviving even the collapse of civilizations or do we have to fix it for him
0: They faced torture, they faced death, horrific death in some cases, believing that they had the blood of Christ and his life coursing in their veins, didn't they?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I know that some of the modern debates that the sacramentarians have forced upon us, they are not really our debates, have have run into corners of, you know, when does the bread that you eat cease to be Jesus or does it cease to be Jesus and and you know, well, what happens with the parts that would actually come out the other side and go into a waste fill? That couldn't be God or what? I think that's it's a bit of a misguided argument. But I do think what your implication there is, right, we should believe firmly that what we're eating is in fact becoming who we are. That when when God says, when I look at you, I see Jesus, it's not just a spiritual idea. That the flesh and blood you have eaten, which is truly is flesh and blood, has done what those atoms do when you eat them, and they've joined with you. And that is Christ's flesh in you. When, when the last day comes, it's not just that God and the Spirit are going to raise you from the dead. It's not accidental that the third article of the Creed connects communion of the saints with the resurrection of the dead. You will not be able to stay dead in the same way that Jesus is unable to stay dead because you are one with him. Right? He is God. He couldn't stay dead. He's alive now. You are now one with him in his humanity and yet we have this other mystery, right? Partakers of the divine nature. doesn't mean man becomes an actual deity, but it does mean we participate in the deity by virtue of the person of Jesus. And so, yeah, that's, that's one with you. It, this is not just a ritual. It is not birthday time remembrances or anything like that. This is a supernatural, mystical, epic, almost mythological. I mean, the, the pagan pantheons have more of this kind of feel to them We've had to be stripped from us. This is a massive, supreme God acting in time and space to guarantee your immortality. You're like Achilles, right? Without the heel. It's just its just different. You have a different kind of sword. You have a different kind of fight. But the invincibility
0: of Jesus himself, that, that's
1: the thing. That is absolutely the thing.
0: You say that this is why Jesus partook in our flesh and blood. That not only that he might redeem us with that flesh and blood, but that he might feed us with that flesh and blood. With a couple minutes here, what do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well One of the, one of the, the kind of more famous arguments against this is my body, meaning what it sounds like it means, is the I am statements in John. And one of the most famous of those is, I am the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And the argument goes, well, see, Jesus is not a vine and we're not branches, so it's a metaphor. Therefore, this is a metaphor, which is a huge leap, by the way, to jump across scripture to some other place and call it a metaphor because I found a metaphor, therefore everything's a metaphor. It's a little weird. But I would contend that the I am the vine uh, is very different than saying I am a vine. He really means it, that he is the ultimate source from which humanity actually physically grows so the vine so far as it exists as a vine some plant somewhere that's the metaphor and Jesus is the reality he is the vine the root from which the new humanity risen from the grave must physically grow and apart from him we can do nothing and he means that there's a factual physical reality and this is true for our sin as well because the reason we are animal carnal natural sinners is that we are from the vine that's rotten, Adam. We grow from him, we are, we are pieces of him, seeds of him spread out throughout this world. And if we are to survive his curse, we need a new root or a new tree to be grafted into. A new human, it's not a tree, we need a new human body, we need new DNA, we need, we need DNA without sin in it or connected to it or corrupting it. And that's what he becomes. He becomes the one man born of woman who also, not born of a father, and a father's will, father's sin, but only of his heavenly father, he being sinless is that new man that will live forever. And if we want to live forever, we just we have to be part of his physical reality. And so what is he doing? He, well, he's doing that. He's putting himself into us and is there for faith, not for sight. So you don't get to see it, you don't get to feel it just yet, because the thing we need to put back is the faith. And of course, these words, which are unbelievable, is it precisely what you would need to have to only believe them and not see them? <laughs> you couldn't have to believe something that was believable. That would be seeable. It's the other way around. So, so yeah, I, I think very much the incarnation and the supper are tied one to another, and then they're tied to you and your, what you might call subjective justification. This is your experience of being justified. It's you know, objectively done. Jesus did it. But to cling to it, to see it, to understand it, to have your mind renewed by it, those are all matters of justification some experience and that experience happens every time you kneel before your king and say I don't deserve to be here and he says but I'm going inside of you anyway go in peace that again I'll contend is a power and a place for courage that we have it some of us but we're not loud about it and we certainly don't make every decision based upon getting that to spearhead our attacks into the culture and I
0: think I think maybe we should In about 30 seconds, how can a layperson benefit from reading your latest book, Without Flesh?
1: Yeah, well, if you're a sacramentarian and think everything I've been saying is stupid, you should read it because I'm gonna argue with you and I'm gonna do it in a way that hopefully is fun and maybe you'll get a better argument against me or maybe I'll convince you. If you are a Lutheran who likes what I've been saying, it would help you think about how to engage that very person that I was just describing in your own life and or hopefully elevate your own piety, drive, hunger, urge, and view of the sacrament of the altar in your life personally, in your congregation, in your family, and and really in the mission of the church. So uh, it's a rallying cry, I would say. And, and so either you're gonna get converted to the rally or you're just gonna run a rally harder.
0: You can purchase Jonathan Fisk's new book, Without Flesh, by calling Concordia Publishing House Weekdays during regular business hours, one eight hundred three two five thirty forty. 325 3040 800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. Be sure to request the Issues Etc. Book of the Month Without Flesh. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is Administrative Pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois, creator of the Mad Christian YouTube channel and podcast, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February Without Flesh. Jonathan, thanks. Thank you. In hour two of Issues Etc., We'll be talking with Bill McKeever of Mormonism Research Ministry about Senator Mitt Romney's vote to find guilty the president on at least one count of the impeachment charges and Joseph Smith's White Horse Prophecy. Then Pastor Ted Geese will join us to review the movie Jojo Rabbit.
2: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.